My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing to walk through the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 2 now. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8. And uh, now you thought maybe a precedent was set last week. We are going to go through all eight verses, y'all. Not one verse left behind. We will finish the entire passage before I sit down. So you can follow along in your Bibles. Yeah, that was a joke. One half left. There we go. Starting out right. We're going to go through all eight verses, and we're going to continue to walk through what Philippians is unpacking, which is this theme of unity. So we'll have uh, the text on the screen and also be on page 570 in your blue Bibles. I think the the church gets uh, really an unfair generalization uh, on a lot of different levels. Uh, I think that in a lot of ways— it gets generalized as a social club of, of just connections that we get to make, uh, that there isn't a lot of depth. I think that that is an accusation that gets thrown at the church quite a bit. I think another thing that's thrown at the church is that it's just a place where, uh, where we're just kind of concerned about money and it's just more of a, of a business uh, and it's more self-serving. I think there's a lot of different things that get thrown at the church. Uh, And what I've seen over the years is something quite different. My experience with the Church of Jesus Christ and the local church is that it is a beautiful place to see the gospel in action. I've seen that time and time again. Uh, Many of you, some of you may not know this, about uh, eight years ago, my wife and I, we actually moved down here uh, to plant our own church. Um, That's why we, we moved back to this area, was to plant our own church. And, uh, you know, I didn't grow up Baptist and didn't know how Baptists did things. And they said, you got to have a, a church that sponsors you, kind of church that gets behind you. And I was like, well, I don't know a lot of them because I didn't, wasn't raised Baptist. But, you know, I did know Chet and Matt, who just started a few years before I moved down here with Mill City. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll rock with them. And uh, so we moved down here. And uh, in that first year, as we were getting ready to uh, kind of launch out ourselves and plan our own church. Right out the gate, um, my, uh, my wife had a miscarriage, and it was a painful experience. And there was a medical procedure that happened after that um, that left us with some, uh, with some medical bills. And we were just kind of dealing with that grief and loss and also having to deal with those medical bills. And I remember, this is back when we were at Glen Forest, I remember in the parking lot one day, Chet came out and met me, He's like, here, and he just handed me a wad of cash. And he said, you know, church, you know, we want to come alongside you in this, but now you've got some medical bills coming out of this to pay for, uh, and we just want to help with this. And I just, in that moment, just felt so deeply loved and cared for. And at that point, it was right out the gate of us. So, so many of the people in this church didn't really know us that well at all. And I've seen some version of that story over and over and over again. I've seen people who've given up cars to, uh, to other Christians that are in need. I've seen uh, uh, time and time again, med- our bills or medical bills are just, just paid off. I've seen the church rally in a lot of different ways. I've seen people give up their Saturdays, their, their cherished time off to be able to take a trade that they use to help others and give it away for free to someone who's in need. I've seen that story play out over and over and over again. So in my experience, the church of Jesus Christ is a wonderful place to be. 
It is one of the most supportive and loving and powerful human experiences that you can be a part of. And yes, I do believe that there are some churches out there uh, that can be described with a lot of labels that don't seem like they really buy into the gospel. I would argue that many of those churches have lost sight of the gospel, or many of them really aren't made up of those who profess and follow Christ in a way that reflects the fruit that is born out in Christians. But I think largely, and our churches, I think is no different, and our churches all across the world that buy into the gospel and live it out in humility with one another. And the reason that is, is because of passages like the one we're going to walk through today. It's passages like we're going to read and, and sit in today. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to walk through the passage together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you might speak to us this morning, that we might have humble hearts to receive your word, and that we would see that this faith that we so dearly and deeply love is built upon something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our individual selves. And I pray you'd open our eyes to that so we might be the people that you have called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, Chet walked us through what it looked like to strive in unity together. The gospel is the thing that unifies us, to strive in unity together. That theme is being pulled through the book of Philippians, and it gets continued to be uh, uh, taught in this second chapter as we pick up in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. All right, let me stop there for a moment. When he says, if there... It's not if in, in the idea of, of this is a possibility. Like if, if that, you know, if, if that will happen. This is actually if in the, in the word of, of since, like since this is true. What he's saying is if this is true and if this is true and if this is true and if this is true, that's what he, he's, he's building upon here. And if you've ever been in conflict with a friend and you've ever been in an argument and all of a sudden you've lost a thread on your friendship for a moment, sometimes you've got to state some true things. You say, bro, I'm on your team. Like, I'm, I'm for you. I'm not against you. If you've been in marital conflict, or the, and, and if, you, if you're married, you have. <laughs> That's a reality. Which also, if, if, you're, uh, if you're married, you should come to our training weekend. It's one of the things we're going to talk about at our training weekend come up in a few weeks. But if you've ever been in marital conflict where, you know, you've lost the thread on, on things, you might have to just stop and say some true things. You might have to look at your spouse and say, you know, so, listen, I'm, I, I love you. I'm actually, I'm for you. I don't think football is more important than you. I'm not going to let 19-year-olds ruin our, our, our date night tonight because they lost again. No, like I'm, I'm you got to say some true things to make sure you're, you're framing, the, like so you don't lose the thread on what you're actually uh, shooting for. And that's what's happening here is that there seems to be a little bit of disunity that's snuck into uh, the church at Philippi, which is common to a lot of New Testament churches, and in the disunity that's happened, he's stating some true things. He's saying, if there is an encouragement in Christ, which is a way of sense, like, yes, there is. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, and there is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, and there is. If there's any, uh, if there's affection, which is tenderness, or sympathy, which is compassion. If these things are true, and they are, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. 
So Paul says, complete my joy, which I love that phrasing. It shows his deep desire for this church to be unified. There's this, this deep desire for them to be unified. He wants this. That it will complete his joy if the church is doing this, which I feel this as a pastor because that just makes me so uh, joy-filled. It makes me so happy when I see our church unified, striving together in love. And he gives some descriptors here of what uh, this unity looks like. He says, having the same mind, having this, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the type of unity he's, he's, he wants them, he desires for them to have, this single-mindedness, this being rooted in the same love of Christ, to have the same uh, uh, mindset and be in the full accord together. When you see this, it's beautiful. Like maybe you've been in a community group where all of a sudden you got a message on your group text or your group me, and all of a sudden it came in and it was someone that said, hey, listen, I, I lost... I lost my job and I'm devastated. You get that message that comes in and all of a sudden you get to see what having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, you get to see that just come to life. And all of a sudden someone says, hey, listen, I'm, I want to make you a meal. I want to just, I'm, I'm, don't, don't, I'm doing it. I'm making it. I'm bringing it over. You all show up at group that week for group meeting time and everyone's cool with in the catch up in life section of your group meeting time of just this being it, that we're going to talk through this. Everyone's okay with it. Just like, I, I got stuff I'm working through, but at the same time, like, I want to be able to yield some time to this because our brother is hurting. Our sister is hurting. And then you get to see it in action when all of a sudden, usually this is how it plays out, is that there's two people that are kind of doing some of the talking here and caring for them. And it's like this tandem, this, this beautiful kind of the same spirit, the same spirit flowing through them together where you're just kind of playing off each other's words and communicating the gospel and applying the good news to someone who's struggling. And it's almost like you can finish each other's sentences because you're just on the same page because you're playing from the same playbook. We have the same mindset. And while that's going on, you've got someone in uh, a few chairs over that's just silently praying for this brother or sister who's struggling. You've got someone else who's already thinking about how, how can we pull together some money to be able to help them pay bills while they're looking for a new job. Like you see all of this at work and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and none of that happens. None of that happens if when you get that message on GroupMe and you just go, oh, man, this is probably going to dominate our group discussion for the next few weeks. This is probably all we're going to talk about. And they're probably going to need money. And right now our budget is strapped and groceries cost way too much. And I just, I don't, we're going to have to chip in. I just, okay, well, here we go because we've got to care for this new situation that's popped up in our group. That attitude, that posture, is the very thing that Paul is going to address in the next few verses. It's something that kills unity in the church. Verse 3 and 4 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you want to destroy the same mind, the same love, this unity in the church, an easy way to do that is selfish ambition and conceit, which is pride. 
A way of saying this is that it's you wanting your own way for your own good, for your own glory. So wanting things for, wanting things our own way, for our own good, for our own glory. If that's our mindset that destroys this unity that Christ has gifted to the church. Now, this selfish ambition, this conceit is not anything new. This is an ancient poison. It's the reason why in the book of Proverbs, 3,000 years ago, Solomon was saying pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is something that has existed for thousands of years in humanity. This, this mindset of just thinking only of ourselves for our own good, for our own glory. And when I hear stories of pastors who have trained wrecked their churches, their ministries, because they've made it all about themselves, that it was all about their own glory. When I, when I see this, it makes me sad and it makes me sick. And yet, they didn't get there overnight. They made a series of decisions that led them in this direction to this is where they are. And then I look in the mirror and I see some of those same things in my own heart. I see some of that same conceit, that same selfish ambition. And I realize I do like to get my own way. I do like things that work out for my own good. And my flesh really does like getting its own glory. And you make decision after decision to get there, which is the opposite of what he's calling us to. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That we make these decisions over and over again for our own interests, for our own good. We count ourselves more significant than others all the time. And, it, and again, it's, it's a, I think it's a series of decisions that you make over time until this is who you are. Happens in the small things. The small things like cutting people off in traffic. Because if you ain't first, you're last. That's the mindset of a lot of us who drive. Just like I just, and you just get, you get I, I don't care, I'm, I, I'm busy, I'm, I'm quick, I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta get to work, I gotta get this. And we'll cut people off left and right. I think this happens in, when you don't return the shopping cart back to the shopping cart rack in the parking lot. Oh man, that's like, that's a long walk. I mean, they get paid to do this, right? So I'm, I'll, just, I'll just leave it here. It's like you, you consider your interest there, not the interest of others. Also, next time, pro tip, just park by the rack. Just, is that easy. It's a little bit farther walk, but you just park right there. Boom. Here you go. You're welcome. This happens in a lot of small ways. This happens with roommates. It's not a lot of pettiness can happen in, in roommate situations. This is not cleaning up after yourself. Not, not, you know, not, not take care of your own dishes. This is like when you, when you, set the milk down all the way to like the bottom, but you, you know if you like set the whole thing, like if you, if you pour it all out, like it's like, I'm gonna have to do something about this. So you leave like two sips, and the next person grabs it and they're like, pour it into the cereal, and it's the saddest moment because you, no, you have no cereal now because you counted yourself more significant than others. This happens in bigger things. This happens when we treat people like utility, a means to our own end. I mean, if you're an employer, this is treating employees like this. So, well, they work for me. And what you see them as is a means to your bottom line. They're a means of me making money as opposed to having a servant's mindset where it's like I got to serve them and I'm serving their families by giving them good work to do. 
And it's just seeing them as utility, seeing them as a means to your bottom line. This happens with coworkers who climb the ladder and use the people around them to climb the ladder. You might fake a friendship with somebody and then all of a sudden when you've moved past them up a rung of that ladder, it's like, I, you know, you're not eating lunch with them anymore. You're not returning calls and texts. It was just for that season so that you can move ahead. This happens with friendships where the only reason that you reach out to someone who you consider a friend is because you need something and they kind of know it too when you call. You leave, hey, how are you doing? It's oh, okay. But you won't. Also happens in friendships. This is particularly true if you struggle with being an out of sight, out of mind person, that friendships are for the season that they're with you. But once you move on to something else, move on to a new group, move on to a new city, you never think about them again. Because they were utility. They were for that season. They were for your benefit then and not later. This happens in marriages. Seeing your spouse as a means to an end. What? Listen, I, I bring home the money. I'm owed intimacy. I'm owed companionship. I'm owed child care. I'm owed a clean house. Don't, don't, don't you see everything that I do for her? This happens with time and how we treat our schedules. Boy, oh boy, I feel this one. That a lot of times when we think about our own schedules, we don't count others' interests as more significant than our own because when we think about our schedules, we're the centerpiece of the schedule. We're the centerpiece. It's us. And when someone asks, hey, like, I'm really struggling with something right now. Would you want to eat and get lunch? Oh, man, I just right now I'm so busy. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think like maybe in like four or five weeks on a Tuesday at like 1130, I might have, th- you know, 45 minutes for you. And it's like, are you the president? I just got to look in the mirror sometimes. Like, I'm wondering, the president? Is my time so valuable that I can't make time for someone? I can't, you know, skip a workout? Or I don't work out, but if I did, skip a workout? <laughs> I, can't, I can't pull this. I can't adjust this. I can't count someone more significant than myself and make time for them. And it's just like, man, I, I, I tell you what, if the bank called you tomorrow and said, come in on Tuesday at, at 3.30 and we're going to give you $10,000, you'd find time like that. Because you value that. Because we value that. But someone's interests above our own, it's like, oh man, I don't know. I'll fit you in at some point. Or the reverse of that is if you're the kind of person that doesn't, I mean, I think it's good to be a person who plans. I think it's good to have a schedule. You might be the person that doesn't plan at all. And you expect someone to drop everything immediately to meet your needs. And you get frustrated when they don't. Oh, because they, what are we? We're, we're a church family. We're, you know, we're friends. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's fake. You're not dropping everything for me because you are counting yourself more significant than them. This happens when someone submits their, humbly submits their desires or their feelings in conversation and you just dismiss it or you bulldoze over them or you don't listen. This happens in social media when, you know, man, too often I get on Facebook, which I just want to be on there less and less because it's just... It's gotten to be just ugly, but people just, man, they just say the ugliest things about family and friends and spouses, making themselves the center of attention to get likes, and they just trash their loved ones, and maybe in like subtle ways, but everyone knows what they're talking about. They try to get everyone on their team, and it's, I mean, it's, it's self-focused, and it's tacky, by the way. 
but you should do it for more biblical reasons than that. It's just, there, there are so many ways that we do this. We make decision after decision after decision that's for, it's our own way, for our own good, for our own glory. And it's made worse because we live in a culture, in an American culture, which is, we're, we're kind of a post-enlightenment, post-modern Western culture, which is basically, we're the center of our universe. That's what our culture sells to us. You're the center of your own universe. Alongside of the American dream and the pursuit of riches that really the American dream is built upon everyone seeing themselves as the most important. So they'll buy and buy and buy and buy and buy and fill in the machine. And all that, like just, I mean, all, we make all these decisions and we're in a culture that just feeds this to us. And then we bring that mindset of self-interest into the church. And that's why you get frustrated when you hear a song on a Sunday that you don't like. I know I feel that. And I have a say in what the music is sometimes. Every now and then I'm like, I wouldn't have chosen that song ever. I, you know, I have sinfully, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to go here, but I'm gonna go here. I've sinfully just walked, I've gone and gotten coffee during a song because I didn't want to worship it, being petty. And it's like, that's so self-focused and self-interested. That's, we do this in a lot of different ways. We do this in volunteering to bring the easiest uh, item to group or volunteering for the easiest task to do or doing something just to be seen. Like I only want to serve in the church if it's visible, if I can see, be seen and get the glory. We do this in community groups. If you're the kind of person that dominates the discussion every week and you want to talk about it, and it's, oh, I got problems, I need to talk about these things. Well, so does everyone else in the room. And if you struggle with being able to condense down what you need to say, maybe write it down beforehand, but look to the interest of others. This happens in discussion in community groups when, when there's a side conversation happening over here when someone else is talking. And it's like, well, y'all aren't being considerate of, I mean, she's pouring her heart out over here and y'all are just having a side conversation or you're on your phone and you're not paying attention. So I'm reading the Bible, maybe. This happens in a lot of different ways in the church. This happens when we don't consider others' words, when we're in conflict. There are times, y'all, when I'm confronted in my sin or in my error, and like I know about five or 10 minutes into the, into the discussion that I'm wrong. Like it's like you've made some compelling points, but there's that part of me that's like, but nah, <laughs> I'm gonna keep fighting for my own way. This happens in a lot of different ways. We bring this into the life of the church. We make decision after decision after decision after decision after decision after decision until we eventually become the people we never thought we would be. Until we become so self-focused and self-interested, so blind to conceit and pride, and we become hurtful people that are just drunk off of our own pride and selves. Let me tell you a story about a miserable king there once was a miserable king who woke up every day annoyed, angry, frustrated, sad. He woke up every day to his kingdom and he'd wake up first thing and he'd see his wife and his children and they weren't happy to be in his presence. They were tired when they woke up and he was annoyed by this because don't they know that he's the king? They should be happy that he graced them with, their pre with his presence this morning. But they're not. They're bickering over what to eat. The wife is tired. 
And he's like, they, I don't get the respect that I'm deserved. And he leaves his palace every day, annoyed, hops into his chariot, and goes across his kingdom. And he's the kind of person who drives his chariot and weaves in and out of all the, all the other chariots, not actually getting really anywhere further or faster, but just switching lanes all the time. And then he gets to his work site where he oversees a special project and he gets there and his servants have not done the work like they're supposed to. They're behind, delayed yet again. And in anger, he lashes out at them. He, he, he unloads on them and they respond, they recoil because they're so used to hearing this, being berated by the king. And then he leaves and he goes to lunch to his favorite lunch spot. And his favorite lunch spot is understaffed, slow. He takes it out on the waitress because she's not doing, they're not, not, not bringing me, the king, what I want on my timing. I have, I've got a schedule here. I've got to move on to the next thing. And that's how he spends his days to the next thing, the next thing. And then all of a sudden he's on his way home, annoyed, angry, frustrated with the day. And then his wife calls him and says, can you stop by the grocery store? I forgot this. He's like, don't you know how important my time is? Could you not have thought about this ahead of time when you got groceries? Goes into the grocery store, always in a hurry, always low-key angry. And then he runs to the checkout line, and then he sees somebody who's also walking to the checkout line, but they're like equidistant to the checkout. So he speeds up because he gets in front of them. And he kind of cuts them off and doesn't make eye contact because he's a coward. A lot of confessions today. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> and he checks out. And he goes home, annoyed. And it's not the meal that he wanted. He would have preferred something different. And he sits in his throne, and he surfs through his phone, and watches videos, until he begrudgingly puts his children to bed. And then he goes to sleep, angry. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> this is a miserable king and a miserable kingdom of his own making. And this is how he lives his life. And he's depressed and he's angry and he's frustrated and he's burnt out. What hope does a miserable king like this have? The hope that he has is the hope that Paul points him to in verses five through eight. That's his hope for change. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He says, have this mind, miserable king, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which Chet's going to spend more time in this next week with the phrasing here and wading into this. But what he's getting at is verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that the God and sovereign true king of the universe who made everything out of nothing and sovereignly rules and reigns over every aspect of creation simultaneously before, during, and after. 
The eternal God who rules over all things loved his creation so much that he left the throne of heaven and he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And then he lived a life of perfection that we could not live. And he went to, verse 8, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the king took on humanity to go to the cross, to die for miserable kings and queens who were only about their own interest and their own good. He looked at us in our own sin and says, I will die for your sin. I will die for your rebellion. And then I will bring you into resurrection life. I will bring you into a new life in Christ where you will no longer be a selfish little king or queen, but you will be a servant of the Most High King. And you will live your life out of this picture, always looking to our Savior who humbled himself, always looking to our King who loved us so much that he gave up his life for us. The only hope for miserable kings and queens is to look at the true King of the universe and to look what he did for us and the own overwhelming act of humility that he displayed for us when we did not deserve it. And our own pride and our own selfish ambition and desires. That through faith we look to him and what he did for us on the cross and we submit our lives to him and that we spend the rest of our days coming back to the gospel to have this mind among ourselves that was so pointedly put in, pointedly put in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, the humility that Christ displays, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The way that you get there is we look to Christ, who was not selfish, but selflessly came to save us. That we look to Christ, who in humility was beaten and murdered for our sin. We look to Christ, who counted us significant enough to not leave us in our sin and to damn us to hell, but came to save us. We look to Christ, who had our interest in mind when he went to the cross on our behalf. When we understand what Christ our King did for us, it is then that we will live not for our own way and not for our own good and not for our own glory. And then we will make all the decisions along the way to live out of that truth. And it means we'll be the kind of people that though we're busy, give up time out of our schedule because our dear sister is going through chemo and I want to give her a ride, not because she forgot how to drive when she got cancer, but because I don't want her to be alone. We'll be the kind of people that when someone is suffering, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna make a meal. I'll make a good meal. I'm gonna spend some time and I don't have it in the grocery budget, but I'll go over this month because I wanna love them well. And it's a good meal. Y'all you know what I'm talking about too. Cause some of y'all been on a meal train before and you know who's putting in the work. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they put the time in. And, and, and we're going to be the kind of people that refuse to leave group meeting time with our group. We refuse to leave that house in disarray. Our, our kids are tornadoes of destruction. And it's like, and they're tired. It's 830 and they're, they're going to be grumpy in the morning. But we're going to spend the next five, ten minutes cleaning up and helping them reset the house. Because 
I love them and I want to consider their interest above my own. We'd be the kind of people that volunteer to watch someone else's child so they can go on a date. Watch someone else's three-year-old so they can go on a date because we remember what it was like to have a three-year-old because three-year-olds can be terrorists. Or if you haven't had a three-year-old, you've served in Kid City and you've seen what kind of actions happen in there right now. And it's like, I want to give you some time so that you can go and have just, you know, three hours to yourself to just enjoy each other's presence because it's good for your marriage. Or you're the kind of married couple that considers single people and their interest above your own and invites single people into your family dinners, into your life, not forgetting about them, but bringing them into your life because we're all the family of God. We're the kind of people... That when they see someone struggling, maybe, maybe you know of a woman in your community group right now who's just, she's just struggling right now. Like the house is a mess and she's behind on laundry, like piles of laundry. You know what I'm talking about when all the laundry stacks up on the couch and it's just a mountain and you want to like, you want to like approach it, but it's just, it's unapproachable. <laughs> and you're the kind of person that says, hey, I'm coming over to, to help you. I'm going to clean bathrooms. I'm going I'm to I'm fold some laundry. Oh, no, it's okay. No, no, no. You're going to have to give me a biblical reason for why I can't come serve you. And spoiler alert, there is none. So I'm coming. I'll be there in an hour. We be, get to be the kind of people who, when we get the text message that says, can we talk? And you know that message is not just, can we talk for five minutes? You know it's going to be 45 minutes and it's going to be a difficult conversation that we don't ignore that text, that we don't put that off because we consider their interests more than our own, more than our own, that we get to use our giftings as builders and mechanics and accountants, whatever God has given you to do that you're good at, to serve others in the church, which you should. If you're good at something, if you're good at building things, if you're good at working on cars, if you're good at spreadsheets and numbers, you should. And you should have the mindset that doesn't be like, well, I get paid to do this. You should have the mindset that says, man, I, God, who do you want me to serve next? You should pray joyfully. God, who, who do you want me to serve next? Who needs, who needs something fixed at their house? Who needs me to go through their budget? Who do, you, who do you want me to serve next, God? We should have this mind amongst ourselves. And we should prayfully, eagerly wait for the opportunity to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. To let each of us not look to our own interests, but the interest of others. But until we see Jesus as king, we will never escape the tyranny of our miserable kingdoms. So we have to look to Christ as our king first. And if we look to Christ, truly look and behold him for what he has done for us. It is then that you get invited into a better kingdom. And that is when miserable kings become joyful servants. Let me tell you how the miserable king became a joyful servant. He beheld Christ for who he is. He finally realized that the whole universe didn't revolve around him, but it revolved around Christ. And he saw what Jesus did for him. And he said, I, I want that. And he gave up his faux kingship to become a joyful servant. And every day that he woke up, even when he was tired, he was ready to give himself away. That even when his children bickered at the table over who gets to look at the box of cereal, 
He came in and, and, and lovingly led them through breakfast and helped them get out the door. But when he jumped into his chariot, he drove a little slower and was a little kinder to everyone else on the road. And he listened to worship music and redeemed the time through prayer and worship, arriving three to four minutes later than he normally would, but at peace. And when he, rove, when he arrived at his work site, his employees, servants, were excited to see him because they saw the change that, he had, that had happened in his heart. He had become a servant leader. And actually, they worked harder for him. They got more done working for him because when you work for someone who's a servant leader, you're ready to run for, through a wall for them because you love them and you know that they love you. And he left his work site, he'd go to lunch, and the, and the waitress who used to cringe when he would come in was now excited to be able to serve him because he was kind with his words and he was patient and he left better tips. That he went through his day always seeking to count others more significant than himself, to serve others, and he went home every night to a family that loved him who was excited to see him because he was a more joyful servant who did not make his family about himself. And then one day, someone asked him, they got the nerve to finally ask, hey man, what, what happened? I, I don't mean to be blunt, but you used to be a jerk. Like, what's your secret? You seem so much more at peace. You seem so much more joy-filled than you used to be. And he cracked a smile and he said, how much time do you have? I'll tell you of how I became a joyful servant by submitting to the humble king. That transformation is offered to all of us. That can be our story. I think many of us run around in life always busy, always frustrated, never joyful. And I think that the secret is found in this text. And if you want to be the kind of person that actually lives a life worth living, that is filled with peace and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, it is found in not looking to ourselves, but looking to Christ, and out of looking to Christ and looking to others' interests before our own. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you might help us who are filled with selfish ambition and conceit. I pray that you might help us look to you, to what you have done for us as not only the hope that saves us, but as the model that sanctifies us, that shows us the way to live. God, help us be not miserable kings and queens and kingdoms, that never satisfy, but joyful servants in the kingdom that you've made. But that comes through believing in the gospel and truly applying it to our lives through repentance and ultimately delighting in you over all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The choice is ours. If you want to be a miserable king or if you want to be a joyful servant, a choice is offered to everyone, and the only way that you get there is in faith. It is by believing 
in Christ and trusting in what he has done for us. And when you do that, you are transformed. As 2 Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You get to be this new creation, this joyful servant. That's offered, but you must have that through faith. And when you finally submit to the king through faith, then you get to enter into the baptism waters, which are the waters that symbolize the inward change that has happened. And that's what we get to celebrate today. We get to celebrate the baptism of one of our brothers in Christ and the transformation that has happened in his life. So I'm going to invite Isaac to come up and he's going to introduce baptism today.